Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well, there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself. That's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Dr. Aaron, who is a GP trainee currently at Guys in St. Thomas's, which is also the place we studied. So of course, a massive honour. He's also a NHS clinical entrepreneur, a Digital Health London fellow, and of course, as you all know, the co-founder of CodeMed which is literally teaching and changing the life of so many clinicians in the country. Massive, massive pleasure to have you on the show, Aaron. How are you, bro? Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity today. Doing really well. Thank you. You have kind of done such a quirky way in terms of career and done lots of interesting things, which is one of the reasons we were keen to have you on the show. Um, But before we go into all the cool stuff, I think what the traditional way has always been is we take it right back to the very beginning, a young Aaron um, who kind of gets up one day and decides he wants to grow up and be a doctor, uh, which may not be the case. But tell us, you know, about the time when you thought, hey, do you know what? When I grow up, I want to be a doctor and that process of applying to med school and take us yeah, through the current day. So I would say it was probably around just after GCSEs where I started thinking, you know, what do I really want to do with my life? And to be honest with you, I was never really 100% sure. I thought, you know, I'm quite good at science, quite good at maths. Um, and I quite like the idea of working as part of a team, doing a job that is ethically and morally quite good. You're helping people. And as well as that, I had, and this is maybe maybe um, a, an incorrect assumption with medicine, I thought it would probably be a reasonably well-paid job. And to be fair, it is. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, all of these things put together. And I thought about various different career avenues from law to accounting, but I just really felt like medicine was the right fit for me, you know, based on my academic interests to the kind of skills that I want to learn and the general person that I want to be. And so I did various different um, like attachments with, um, oh, I can't remember what they're called. Um, Work experience, work, work experience yeah. I did various different work experience and yeah. GPs and then also in the hospital. So I did a work experience attachment with a cardiology consultant. And I just really like the idea of being a doctor. And I think in the long run, nothing really prepares you for medicine. Even when you complete medical school, you don't really know what being a doctor really is like. All the administrative work, the highs, the lows, the kind of people that you get to meet. You never really, you know, truly know what you're walking into. So... I think I made the best guess that I could based on the information that I had. And I don't really have any regrets about it. Walk us through medical school, what it was like, the highs and lows that you mentioned. Tell us a little bit about your sort of your period of growth to become the doctor you are today. Yeah. So I think so the way our, I went to Oxford University. So the way our medical school works is maybe slightly different to some other uh, universities and medical schools. So the first three years that we do are called preclinical. So we all we, we do almost pretty much just like academic science, biomedical sciences kind of work. And you spend the first three years thinking, why am I really doing this? Because you're not really doing any medicine, <laughs> right? And you kind of start to develop other interests because of that. So you start looking into things like research mm-hmm. and you get quite a few research opportunities and things. And I was really lucky to get involved with a project uh, during my intercalation, which was looking at the role of these biomarkers called exosomal microRNAs in uh, cancer. So it's like a novel invasive, uh, non-invasive biomarker. And we're looking at the, the research I did was looking at the various different technologies available to isolate and uh, identify these kind of biomarkers. And it was um, really great 
research that I did and I got a reasonably good mark in my dissertation for it, which I was really proud of. But actually, I about two years later when I was in clinical school, I thought, hey, you know what? I've done all this work. I got a reasonably good mark. Let's just see if I can get this published. And I, you know, I applied to get to get it published at a journal, got it rejected. You get a bit of feedback so you can use that to improve your work, then sent it again, got it rejected. I probably got rejected about five or six times. Yeah. And then eventually one journal accepted it and it was amazing. Um, and one thing that I really like learned from that experience actually was there is a lot of work you do as a doctor or as a medical student. And it's really important that you see it through to the end. Don't undervalue your work because you never know what it will become and make sure you're optimizing and capitalizing on the work that you've already done. Because never, you know, this is a, this is a paper that's now been cited, I think over 200 times. Um, I'm the primary author of it. And it's something I did as a medical student. I didn't, I never thought in a million years that work that I'd done would be valued research, even as a medical student. So for those people who are listening out there who are either medical students or junior doctors, I really do um, implore you or urge you to really look at the work that you've done because there's so much of it that has potential, but you might have actually just completely dismissed mm. it. For those people, right? So sometimes it's hard to know what you don't know, or it's hard to find out how to go about sort of taking the stuff that you've done and taking it to the next, to, to the next level. So a lot of people can, yes, get involved in research, but then how do you sort of identify, okay, how do I go about taking it to the next level to present at a conference, to publish it in a journal? How do you go about sort of doing that? What, how, what would you yeah, advise? You're, you're completely right. It's like, how do you know the unknowns? How do you know the potential that you've not yet yeah. demonstrated to yourself? And because mm -hmm. of that, I think you have to do things in a stepwise fashion. In this situation where I got this paper published as a student, um, you know, I, I got quite lucky. I kind of stumbled across this kind of situation. But mm. I mean, if you're a uh, medical student or a doctor who hasn't yet done that, then you have to look at the kind of stepwise approach. For example, like you said, before you go on to get something published, like in, in a full-blown journal, what about submitting it to a, a conference? And let's say that gets accepted, you present mm. it, and then you can think about the next level after that. So I'm not saying you have to go from zero to 100. Um, just think about mm. things mm. that are just, not necessarily like million miles away, just the next level. And then now you know, oh, I've achieved that now. Let's think about the next level after that. And it's not just research, it's, you know, jobs, mm. anything, anything that you feel like. I think in, in, in medicine, we are, we have quite a, almost like a, our training is almost like a conveyor belt, right? So we go from medical mm. student, like first year, second year, third year, so on. Then we become an F1, then we become F2. Some of them might, might take an F3 but then you go into training and then it's just, mm. you, you don't really have to think about it. You don't have to think about the next step. Mm. But if you're in any other career, you might have to think about, well, I want to get a promotion. I want to be at the next level. And you're constantly mm. thinking about the next thing. And I think that's something that we kind of lack maybe as clinicians, not in a bad way. It's just the, the nature of our jobs. Mm. And if you mm. can kind of get, get into that frame of mind where you're constantly thinking okay, this is what I'm doing now. What is it that I want to be doing? What, who is it that I want to be? And how can I take the necessary steps yeah. to get to that point? Then I think, you know, you're on your way to be a successful person, not necessarily just a clinician, just a person in general. No. So we know you went into kind of Oxford Med School, kind of got from medical school, obviously graduated, did foundation training. Tell us a bit about the tech side of your life. When did you start getting interested in learning to code? Um, was it something you stumbled upon? Have you always been interested in tech as a kid? Um, tell us about that facet of your life. So I'd say I've always been relatively interested in technology, um, even as a, as a child, like in, in terms of computers, you know, even when you're exposed to like things like video games and gaming, like this is all like, I always think when I'm playing like really cool video games, like this is an amazing, this is amazing technology, like really appreciating it. And um, I'm sure many of you, you, know, you guys will have as well. And so I started off initially when I was in medical school, 
just focusing on research to do with technology. So mobile health apps, um, not novel surg surgical devices and interventional radiology devices. Um, and like I said, that, that paper that was published before on um, cancer biomarkers and technology for isolating those. So that's kind of where it started, just kind of developing this kind of interest. And that was more general in the sphere of medical technology. And then when I started work as a F1, when you look around everywhere, every kind of almost solution is digital. You know, whether you're looking at the messaging app on your phone or the um, list of contacts and phone numbers and, and almost like an address book app or your um, antimicrobial guideline app. It's all apps, your EPR system, everything is digital. And there are various issues with some of those technologies. And you think, well, I can do this better than that. I could build something much better. And that's kind of what my mindset was. Can I build, you know, I wanted to be able to build something which would be able to solve problems easily and change lives, not just for patients, but also I, my own colleagues and my friends who are also working as doctors. And one of the great things about programming in particular, so when you look at med medical technology as a kind of sphere, within that is computer programming and digital technology. One thing that's quite unique about digital technology and computer programming is you can build something out of literally nothing with just a computer. You don't need, a, you know, if, for example, if you wanted to build a new stent, you would need the required like machinery or various technologies to do that. Whereas with an app, you need a reasonably good computer and maybe a good internet connection so you can look things up and learn how to code and then you can build it and you can do it with no investment. And I think that's, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what really attracts me to computer programming. The fact that you can literally build something from nothing. And some of you might already know this, but Imran Qureshi, who you relatively recently interviewed, he was a microbiology, well, he is a microbiology consultant at Croydon. And I was getting along with him really well. He sent out, he sent out an email to all of our year group. And he said, hey, everyone, I did a medical degree. Uh, I did a computer programming degree before medicine. And would anyone like to learn how to code? So myself, Joe, we both signed up. And, you know, he taught us how to code after work. And then after that, we started developing, you know, we've got this interest in computer programming. And as with any skill, whether you want to be a footballer or a YouTuber or an influencer, you have to keep on practicing, keep on going consistency and just persevering through it so you can learn more and expand your talents. And that's it's essentially what both Joe and I were doing since, since we learned. We've been building, tinkering with things, building new, um, building new products and developing new ideas. And by doing that, you naturally get better at it. And when you get better at it, you can build. And like I was saying before, it's about doing things in a stepwise fashion. So you start off with little things. So we started off with, you know, very basic programming, programming like apps, like a CT head guideline, you know, see nice CT head guideline tool to decide when someone should have a CT head after a head injury. Then we built an antibiotic calculator for our trust, which also won some awards as well. And then after that, you know, we've been working in bigger apps. So I've been building CMEPR, which is like a mock EPR system. So I've gone from F1, no program experience to learning how to code, building a relatively simple antibiotic calculator to building a full-blown mock EPR system, which is now connected to a server and can, you know, you can request investigations, view investigations, prescribe pretty much everything you can do on a really real EPR system all within three years. All yeah. of that has cost me nothing. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, nothing to build, just time really, and a reasonably good computer. In fact, I was I started off building it using my 2012 MacBook Air. So it was like nearly 10 years old. You know. <laughs> Aaron, I want to ask you a interesting question. So when I think about doctors traditionally, I just think doctors, I think uh, they might dabble in research, but that's what they're defined as. You're stepping out of line <laughs> you're stepping out of the box that you um, sort of spoke about before hitting record 
what does the future clinician look like? Uh, because you're contributing to actually building that future clinician, I feel, with how what the works and everything that you're doing, you're building the future, essentially. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the future looks like for clinicians. So I think that as time goes on, doctors are expected to do and achieve more and more. You know, we have mm. more tick boxes to fill, whether it's a CBD or an audit or a quip. And things mm. are getting increasingly more competitive in many ways. You know, all you have to do is look at the um, core surgical training, app, you know, checklist, and you'll see how many different boxes <laughs> you have to tick and how many different competitive advantages you need to gain. And with that comes a lot of scope to try and do things that are outside of that box that is, you know, defined mm. as traditional medicine. So it's not just about doing cannulas and taking histories anymore. It's about diversifying your skill set mm. and doing things that mm. are different. So now we're expected to do things like research and teaching and things like that. But I think looking even in the in the longer run, I think we're going to be expected to do and achieve even more and different things. I wouldn't be surprised if in the future it would become relatively norm for doctors to have at least some software experience because like I was saying, yeah. digital innovation forms quite a core aspect of improvement in healthcare. Mm. But then I think there's also, as well as the kind of ticking boxes side of things, I think that there's also the following your own interest side. So there's the career ticking boxes. Mm. So for the surgical applications or the anesthetic applications, but then there's the more kind of aspirational side of things. It's becoming more of a thing for junior doctors to take an F3 year, sometimes an even F4 year, sometimes even more, even longer than that. And yeah, I think it's becoming exactly. increasingly recognized that it's okay as a doctor to follow your interests and go outside of that box that yeah. defines you or people perceive that you should be defined by. Mm, mm. Whether that's podcasting, building apps, or you want to do, you want to set mm. up a YouTube channel and do various things like that. Mm. It's more and more accepted, you know, becoming portfolio doctors in many ways. I think, G yeah, and I think yeah, GPs yeah. have it ahead of the game. Like they, they are already doing those sorts of things. Yeah, that's true. And I yeah, think you definitely. just have to look at GPs to see what the future is for doctors. So things like management, mm. business, um, yeah. being able to, you know, follow whatever interests like GPs with special interests. So being able to be a rounded clinician mm. that can do other things that are outside, slightly outside the scope of what your initial specialty is. No, definitely. I think I definitely agree with you and resonate. I think while we were at med school, there was this whole definitely like we were budding surgeons, literally, you know, paying for courses, learning how to suture, learning, you know, our CV was like, you know, you're running around trying to get audits and publications and we, we did all of that. And it really was this box. I literally thought, you know, how do I make myself the most competitive applicant when mm. it comes to, you know, core surgical training? What are the courses I need to attend? And this world of entrepreneurship, content creation, you know, podcasting, YouTube was literally not even on my radar, only a handful. But they were outcasts. They were like, oh, you know, he's gone off to some weird things. He, he'll never be a doctor. He's forsaken the, the profession, like this box, right? Um, and as time goes on, like I'm seeing a lot of medical students, even first years, they're all co-founders. They all got their own startup. They're all involved in something, you know, some sort of content creation. And it's really interesting to see the scope of medicine changing. And, and like you said, I do feel the future, you know, consultant posts are going to be a hybrid one where not only are you expected to be very good clinically and academically, it will be like, you know, tell us a bit more about your technology background. Can you code? Can you software? You know, can you manage products? Because the future of healthcare is digital. Um, what advice would you give to medical students or junior doctors to kind of give themselves that edge? How did they break out of that box? Because let's be honest, you are still an anomaly. How many doctors really are doing what you're doing? If, mm. if I'm being honest, like a lot of people are, medicine is risk averse, right? You, you kind of know your next step, you know, it's a stable career. How do you break out of the box is the question I'm asking yeah, really. Yeah, I think you've raised some really good points. And I think 
to answer that question, it's really important to define what this box is. So this clinical yeah. clinical box that we have as clinicians, essentially, the moment you become a medical student and then become a doctor, you are expected to behave a certain way. So you've got obviously the GMC guidance for doctors. Now, we're not here to have yeah. a discussion whether that's right or wrong, but that's just how it is. You know, you, you have to set an <laughs> SJT exam, you know, just to determine how your mind works and to make sure it aligns with that particular framework. And like I said, whether that's right mm. or wrong, it's not a discussion for today, but it's a way of making sure that doctors stay in line, stay in that same, you know, train of thought that meets the yeah. GMC requirements as a doctor. Then mm. you've also got the type of skills that you're expected to learn. So obviously in medical school, you have a curriculum and then even as an F1, F2, you have your um, UK foundation program curriculum. So you're expected to learn certain skills. You've got to get certain things ticked off. And then because of all that, you kind of become indoctrinated to be a certain type of person, right? And any other skills or life experiences almost aren't as important as that in many ways. So, yeah. yeah, I'm a doctor. Why would I want to know how to do accounting? You know, why would I want to know how <laughs> to do video editing? Why would I want to know how to program? You think you, you just think yeah. that mm. it's not relevant to your career and therefore it shouldn't be part of, you know, your training. Yeah, you no don't value. assign a value to it. Mm. And this is the problem with medicine. It almost defines you as a person. You know, you aren't when people when you talk to people or when you tell them oh you're a doctor or you're a medical student immediately there's this certain they have they form certain assumptions about what kind of person you are what kind of interests you have all these kinds of things do you play golf you know do you um did you go to a private school or something like that right um so i think it's really great to see people already trying to break out of that box and try and do different things because it's something we as a mm. kind of a collective group of healthcare professionals have almost created for ourselves, which has stopped us from diversifying even further. So I think it's really important mm. to be aware of that. You know, when opportunities come your way, for example, someone says, hey, do you want to know how to code or anything like that? Think yeah. about, well, what is the reason why you don't really want to do it? Is it because you're not actually interested in it? Or is it because you just don't feel like it, it fits into that box as a healthcare professional or a doctor. Mm. And I think if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this because it's not relevant to my core surgical training application, but it, you know, if I wasn't a doctor, I probably would learn how to do it. That's probably not the right reason to say no, because you never know what that opportunity becomes. And I always say to people, mm. when you form these kind of interests and things like that, then it's actually a really great business opportunity because there isn't any other better business mm. than doing a business that surrounds something that involves doing something that you enjoy, right? So you're almost monetizing something that you yeah. love, love doing. And because it takes consistency exactly. and perseverance and repetition, yeah. it's really important that you're doing that thing that you enjoy doing because it can take years and years for you to keep on doing this thing before you even get anywhere, before you even start making yeah. your money. So yeah, that's why I yeah. think it's really important to look outside the box because not everything in medicine you're going to enjoy. And there'll be plenty of things outside that box yeah. which you will actually enjoy. And don't think, mm. oh, it's not relevant to my training because I'm a doctor, therefore I'm not going to do it because you never know mm. what it becomes. And like, you know, I'm doing the pro this programming. I absolutely love it. I, I program pretty much every day. And I never would have thought I'd be, do be mm. like be where I am now if it wasn't for the fact that I learned how to code. Yeah. And yes, it doesn't technically fit Exactly. within that sphere of being a doctor. Although I think in the future, it probably will. The ones who do break out of the box are actually very special. For example, you, what you do by breaking outside the box is actually you're making the box better. So for those that are still inside the box, you're looking to make it better. So with the apps that you're developing, with the, the programs that you're looking to de develop, the NHS will one day be in a better position where it's not running on Windows 92 anymore <laughs> and, and things are a lot more connected and work smoother. So I think w w sort of breaking out of the box makes first things inside the box better as well. 
but I think it also makes the experience of being in the box and being in training and being a doctor better as well because you probably get to go to work and trial and test what you built in your bedroom and see how it's positively impacting your workspace. Um, I really, really resonate with that and I really love that that analogy that you formed with being in the box and outside of the box. So mm. yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your, so you were at the digital health, uh, you're a digital health yeah. fellow, right? Tell us a little bit about how you got the fellowship. Tell us a bit about the experience, what you learned um, and how it's sort of contributed to your development and growth. Sure. So essentially um, the Digital London Digital Pioneer Fellowship is available to any healthcare professional who's based in, I believe, London and the Southeast. So anyone can apply really. And essentially the reason why I applied was to gain those skills in the sphere of digital health that are far beyond what you can learn in a purely clinical environment. And so like engaging stakeholders, um, and instigating change, agile methodology, all these things you'll never really get the chance mm. to learn unless you do a really, really good quality improvement project. And what mm. you actually do in your application is you, whether you're doing some sort of quality improvement project or working with management to uh, initiate some sort of digital change, you apply with your project. And not only do they teach you these core values in digital innovation in healthcare, but also they support you in terms of helping propagate your project further. So I initially applied with my project SIMIPR. At the time I was just kind of building yeah. it and I was in the early stages of piloting it. Mm. And then since then with their support, I've then expanded to two other um, hospitals and most recently Amazing. also got a commercial agreement with a medical school in the Southeast. So it's a really great program yeah. to apply for, not only for learning new skills, but also taking your project further and also taking your career further because mm. it's a big name in, you know, nationally. Yeah. And it's definitely a great name to drop when it comes to interviews and things like that. So people absolutely love it. So yeah, I definitely absolutely. recommend if any, anyone's based in London, the Southeast, definitely throw in an application and um, yeah, see where you go with it. Definitely. I think just up until now, like what strikes me about you is you're always open to opportunities, you know, and a lot of these seem to have been quite pivotal in your career. You know, you randomly get an email saying, do you want to learn to code? Right. It's for some microbiology consultant in Croydon. Right. I'm sure Imran won't mind me saying this. Like <laughs> who, who gets these emails? These are emails you literally just like, what on earth am I going to waste time doing that? You took it and then it opened up this whole yeah. new world for you. Then you decide to become a fellow at Digital Health London. No way does that help you become a better surgeon or a better medic or whatever, right? You know, it's saying yes to so many opportunities. And I want to echo that to all our listeners that saying yes to opportunities to really find what you're passionate about and then honing in on that. For you, it's digital health and programming is good. I want to kind of touch on um, something that, you know, is quite interesting. We mentioned before is you were doing all of these things. You know, you took time out of training. You had, you know, an amazing F3 year, which I'm sure you did. Why did you go back into training? Why didn't you take a few years out to kind of really develop and become mm. a super awesome coder and, you know, do more wonderful things? What's the rationale there? Because I think that there's, yeah. there's some uh, logic Hopefully there. I made the right decision. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that, so med medicine's a really, really tough job. I mean, I don't think anyone can really deny that it's emotionally and physically really quite draining, especially as a foundation year one and two doctor, you know, you're a relatively new doctor, yeah. you're thrown in the deep end and you've got a lot to learn and you've got all these night shifts and all these late shifts that you never did as a medical student. So it's really hard <laughs> and you, you don't really, and when it comes to trying to look outside this box and explore other things, it can be quite difficult because mm well, you're bogged down trying to be a trainee and do your job. Yeah. So the reason why I took a year out was part of the reason was I, I developed these early interests in computer programming and I, I, I kind of want a, wanted a bit of a break from clinical work, mainly from the night shifts, and things like that. And obviously working as a locum, 
gives you the opportunity to, you know, work a couple of times a week, um, feel quite well remunerated for the work that you're doing, or at least fairly remunerated for the work that you're doing. And at the same time, start chasing some of those interests that you've really started developing. Yeah. So actually, even though I learned to code as an F1, it's actually during my F3 year where I really started accelerating it because taking a year out gave me that opportunity. And then also I had, mm. um, I was, had other opportunities that were thrown at me. So I became the deputy lead of emerging technology at the Department of Health and Social Care. Yeah. And it was an amazing job. And it's one of those things where you just keep on doing things in a stepwise fashion. I never thought, you know, if you asked me as a medical student, would you ever get to that point? I'd have absolutely no idea. I'd say definitely not. You get to these things <laughs> in steps, right? And yeah, so I had this job, an amazing job where I kind of got to immerse myself even more in medical technology and things. And I was um, co-leading the team that was responsible for evaluating novel COVID-19 testing technology. So any technology that was an alternative to PCR mm. and lateral flow testing. So really interesting. I really kind of in my, well within my kind of niche and my interests. But then mm. I thought after F3, you know, one of the reasons why I'm able to code these health apps and be able to get this job as uh, at the Department of Health is also because I'm a doctor, right? And I think there is yeah. a huge mm. amount of value in being a doctor and it allows you to do, I mean, even though being a doctor, you're sometimes you can feel like you're confined to this box, but actually outside of this box, there are so many things you can do just because you're a doctor, mm. right? And that clinical, mm. that clinical experience that you have is highly valued in employers and within startup companies and various other organizations, because, you know, there are mm. so many skills you learn as a doctor that aren't necessarily clinical, but even those clinical skills can be of value. But even those, skills like working as part of a team, working under immense pressure sometimes. These are really highly valuable skills. Mm. And I think that complete, go, you know, going through your training and completing it just adds to that value. I didn't, it didn't sit right with me yeah. just to leave um, training before it actually finished completely, like either becoming a consultant or a GP. In this case, I chose to be a GP. Yeah. I felt like in the longer run, there was a huge amount of value in being a doctor. And I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for the fact that I am a doctor, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think, so I agree with you in the sense, you know, the intrinsic value of just being a doctor, not having anything under your, your belt is, is, is very, it's noble and it, the skill set is amazing, which a lot of people fail to realise because we're so disgruntled. You know, you go into med Twitter and like, you know, people are regretting becoming doctors. People aren't doing a, a single day of F1 and leaving to become an analyst in like a big consultancy firm. So I think people sometimes fail to realise the value of being a doctor outside of medicine and within medicine. This kind of brings me on to the next question is, how do you make the time to continue doing what you love doing, growing CodeMed? coding developing while you're a gp trainee you know on calls and nights and weekends so and you know you're going to be doing this for the next three years how are you managing it all yeah that's a really good question and it is really really difficult i'm not going to lie it's not an easy thing to do sometimes you know you know i've finished a long day of work and i really don't have it in me to carry on doing a bit of coding in the evening and things like that and i think that's why it's really important to focus on something that you really enjoy doing. So if you have an alternative interest that you really want to pursue or you want to build a business, that's precisely why it's really important to find something that you enjoy doing and pursue that. Because ultimately, if you do decide to continue being a doctor, then you're going to have to balance that thing that you enjoy with work. So it's really important that you enjoy it because Otherwise, you're going to give up pretty quickly. And if it's something you enjoy, you make time for it. So, for example, on the weekends, I have absolutely no problem doing a bit of coding for a few hours. It's not even, it, I don't even consider it work sometimes. I actually find it quite relaxing. So it's almost become a kind of part hobby, part business, um, you know, something that I just really enjoy doing. And I think that's the key thing. You know, if it's something you enjoy, you will make time. You naturally will because you want to do it. 
you know, you're trying to finish your work as quick as you can so you can get home at five o'clock and then just start doing some coding or, or recording videos or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, do. Do you know how I can tell you really love it? Is that you've just finished a gruesome shift and the smile you have on your face as you say that is incredible. <laughs> so love it, love it. <laughs> now, I think you are right. As in um, training shouldn't put you off and mean that because you are now training, you have to give up all those passions you developed in your every year, which it seems the vast majority of medics are doing. Um, and like you said, when you really have a passion for it, when you really see it as a hobby and not work, you'll always make time for it. So I think what we're trying to say is, even if you do decide to go back into training, it shouldn't be an excuse for you to not pursue the things you do love and enjoy our medicine. Mm. And going back to the box analogy, and I may be wrong and it may be controversial, I genuinely believe the people that have things outside of medicine are more fulfilled and it in turn makes them better doctors. Like you enjoy the job more because your life isn't centered around being a doctor. It's not the end or be all. You have other things where you gain fulfillment and satisfaction from. So you may have an awful shift like you had today and be like, James, you know what? I, I enjoy coding. I've got this going for me. I'm involved in X, Y, and Z. I don't know what your opinion is on that. or if it's I don't think that's controversial at all. I think you've really hit the nail on the head and it kind of links to what Ams was saying as well. So, you know, if you've got, if you've kind of reached outside that box and you've seen what's out there, and you've picked the things that you like doing, you're like, well, you're outside now of that box that defines you as a doctor. So because of that, you're no longer just a doctor. And I say that in quotation marks, just a doctor, because being a doctor is still pretty good. Um, so, you know, when things go wrong at work, you know, just like today, I finished three hours late, things went horribly wrong. But I'm not going to let that define me as a person. You know what I mean? Like things didn't go to plan, you know, mistakes were made that's fine. You know, that is what happens in medicine. And it's not going to define me as a person because there's a whole load of other things that I'm doing. And there's a whole load of other things that are going really well. Not that I'm saying that medicine's going really badly just today was a bad day. Um, so, I mean, I think it allows you to look at things in a different way and reflect on it slightly differently. And like you were saying in the longer run, I think it does make you happier because you have those, you're able to follow your interests. You're not just doing something that some of the time you're not really enjoying. And then I always think sometimes, even if it's a small part, like, so for example, you really enjoy medicine, but you know, maybe one, one day a week, things don't go quite to plan. Things go a bit wrong. You end up finishing late. It's quite stressful. That's not abnormal. And that happening week in, week out, even though it's just one day, you know, it chips away at you and having those alternative interests allows you to just take your mind off that and helps you define like define yourself as a person in a slightly different way definitely mm. do you do, do you find that you also walk into the next shift actually with a bit more optimism hope and you actually enjoy it more because as an as someone out of training now because i choose my shifts and the rest of the time working on peer, I find that when I do do the shifts, I just actually feel like I'm really enjoying it because it's like a switch up from my working on the tech side of thing and now working as a clinician and I, because I'm not obviously completely drained and everything, I'm really enjoying it. Um, do you feel like you also enjoy working as a doctor because of everything outside as well? Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's like the saying, variety is a spice of life, right? And I think by doing loads of different things, I think ultimately you do enjoy your life more. And it's exactly like you were saying, you're completely right. And, you know, as adding to what you've said, I think you, because, you know, if bad things happen, you've, you've got other things that take your mind off it. You're not just thinking about that. And also, I think when I've had a really good day of coding, like, I've done that work, I've reached the targets I intended to meet by the end of the day. Then the next day, I just feel absolutely ready to be on shift and like do my clinical work because, you know, you've just had that variety in, in your life and you're able to, I think you, you almost have like different compartments in your brain, right? And with all the different activities that you're doing. And yeah, it can be really busy trying to juggle all those things at once. But I think it's also quite fulfilling to have those different interests that you can categorize and you can think about and reflect on in various points in time, not just 
clinically fo focused, just like eyes on the prize, medicine, training, trying to get my surgical, like surgical experience up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going wild. I think um, it's that concept of it's better to be content at 70% from four or five different sources than to try and be 100% exactly. from one source, which is, let's say, thinking if I become a surgeon, if I become a consultant surgeon, 100% of happiness yeah. will come from that. Whereas mm. it's more better in the long run in the grand scheme of things is to be less content in multiple things than kind of bank it all on one. Exactly. I think what I wanted to touch on and, um, and it just came to me and it's quite important actually is you've done so many wonderful things in your career. You're kind of embarking in this new journey, but you recently put out a tweet about when you were in your final year of med school and that consultant kind of bomb blasted you and said you'll never make it and you'd be such a bad doctor an awful doctor um, and i'm paraphrasing take us back to that moment in time like how are you feeling and what advice would you give to people because i can bet money on it you weren't probably the first person he ever said that to or she T tell us you know yeah, if you don't mind yeah, sharing that moment with us. um well i firstly I, I did not think that that tweet would get as much attention as it did um and I would say that there was part of me that was quite happy to see that I'm not the only person that has experienced this. But then there was another part of me that's quite sad because it's like, obviously, there are a lot of people that were posting their experiences as well. And obviously, it's quite clear that this kind of behavior is quite commonplace in the NHS, which is a real shame. Mm -hmm. And it's something... something. Yeah. So tell us what happened for the, yeah. for the listeners yeah. that obviously don't follow so, you on Twitter. I was in my final year of medical school and I think it was just a few weeks away from um, our final exams. On top of that, we had our ranks that were given to us for foundation training. Now, for me, it didn't necessarily go to plan. I was ninth decile. I'm not ashamed of it. I was, I was ninth decile. Things didn't go necessarily to plan. And, you know, that kind of does knock your confidence a little bit because you start questioning, oh, am I going to really struggle as an F1? I mean, the reality is these are all just academic exams. They're not necessarily even OSCE. So I, I don't think it necessarily has any bearing as who you are as a person or a doctor. So any medical student out there who doesn't get the rank that they want, it means absolutely nothing, right? As long as you passed your exams, and even if you didn't, like it shouldn't define you as a person. And being an F1 is actually very different to a medical student. Um, so anyway, I was already feeling a little bit down about it. And I had been on placement with this team which had a consultant. And at the end of the rotation, the doctor kind of pulled me to one side. The, well, the consultant pulled me to one side. And I'd also failed an ABG that day, which it, looking back on it, failing an ABG is really not a big deal. I mean, I failed so many ABGs as an F1 and sometimes an F2. Like, you know, it was no big deal. But at the time, I was really a bit annoyed about it. And I already had this anxiety about, oh, am I gonna, what am I going to do as an F1? And then, yeah, he pulled me to one side and kind of just maybe he had a bad day or something. But this was in front of everyone in the mess, junior docs and things. And he said that I'm not fit enough as a um, final year medical student, let alone an F1 doctor. And on a normal day, I don't think anything like that would have bothered me. But I think it was like a compound of all these things that were going on, which really kind of got to me. Yeah. And I got home and I had a chat with my, my fortunately, I've got quite a supportive group of friends and I had a chat with with them and it actually transpired that apart from the fact that he knew that i failed this abg he'd never actually seen me clinically like he'd never mm. watched me examine a patient he'd never watched me take a history or anything like that so on what basis was he yeah. saying this um so i think to all those people and i'm sure many people who are listening to this will have had some kind of similar experience and it's a, it's a great shame that that happens in the nhs because the majority of people that you meet are absolutely yeah. fantastic people I would say, mm. in some ways, take it with a pinch of salt, right? Secondly, yeah. if there is some kind of criticism or something like that that's thrown your way, try and analyze it and see, firstly, like, how can you make it, how can you make yourself better from that experience? So is there something mm. you can learn? So for example, had this consultant, you know, watched me examine a patient and he said there was a particular aspect of my examination that he didn't like, then that's fine. You can work on that, right? But sometimes you get people who are just, you know, they've had a bad day and they feel like they want to take it out on you. And it's not okay, really. But I think 
know that firstly being a bad medical student again i'm saying this in quotation marks because it's not necessarily true being a bad medical student or a junior doctor doesn't define you as a person not getting a good marking exam doesn't define you as mm. a person and i think always make sure you're talking about these things with either your friends or anyone who's supportive whether you've got a supervisor and really talk these things through to find out a whether there is actually a problem and b how you can deal with it you know how you can deal with that kind of feedback or criticism or completely unfair behavior it's sad to hear that happened to you but at the same time i feel you kind of took it in your stride and, and look at you now and i think the, the person we are today is is a collection of all our experiences both good and bad to what we make and i feel having that experience to be more conscious of when you have your own medical students because you're obviously an educator for yeah. kings right and you'll become a qualified gp and you'll have your own gp trainees you know one day and i feel it will make you that a bit more well advised in terms of how do you treat trainees and medical students because let's be honest there there is this culture of hierarchy and you know this, this imposter syndrome that does exist um so thank you for sharing that i think it's, it's probably quite important for our listeners to listen to mm. I, th- I think it's important to share it because you need to make people aware that it exists to then sort of remove exactly. those bad apples let's be honest there there's no place for that there is zero uh, space for that to exist um, and so when people are aware of, okay, Aaron's experienced this and you know what, we can't accept it. So it creates, it fosters an environment where if you're going to behave like that, yeah, you need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as you could, yeah, there's no exactly. space for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, thank you so much for sharing that. And the tweet, the response that you got just, just sort of, uh, what do you call it? Amplifies the fact that so many people have experienced it. And you know what, if you all just stick together and don't yeah, allow room exactly. for that. They won't exist. And just just adding to what Abdul has said, because you made a really good point, is that as somebody who's kind of experienced this, and hopefully a lot of these other people who are listening who may have also experienced this kind of behavior, it kind of makes you think twice about speaking to someone else like that. And I think by talking about these things and sharing like how this has affected you, I think you're really getting it out there. And not only are you saying, you know, this is not okay, behavior and this should be escalated and talked about and things but Mm. also it makes other people understand who've experienced it or or maybe not yet experienced it then actually no you shouldn't really be talking Mm. to people like that and if you're teaching a group of medical students or you know a gp trainee and uh, you're a gp and you're people you you then don't do the same thing right that's really important exactly yeah no i definitely agree i think Teaching, to be fair, like our startup is an ed tech startup and, and we value teaching immensely. And when you're in a position of having, you know, the opportunity to teach other people, it's a it's a position of privilege which shouldn't be abused. And a lot of the times, as medical students, we do look up to consultants. Like before we've entered the world of work, like being a consultant is such an awe-inspiring thing. Like, oh my God, he's a consultant, you know, mm. everything kind of revolves around him. So um, it does kind of put things into perspective kind of moving on and kind of trying to finish on a, on a more happier note what does the future look like for you Aaron you're, you're working on a lot of things um, you know coding and developing is one of your all-time passions as well as being a clinician um, where do you see yourselves in the next few years or what do you yeah. hope to have accomplished in the, yeah. in the coming few years that's a really difficult question to answer <laughs> or maybe one thing that you hope to achieve being yeah. a GP qualified yeah. GP doesn't count because because you better be you know qualified. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that. of course I'm, I plan to complete my GP training but I, I'm fully um, intending to continue my work with CodeMed and SimiPR and try and expand yeah. the work that we're doing but I think one thing that's quite interesting about the whole entrepreneur business kind of sphere and you guys might have experienced this yourselves actually is that you find yourself not really working towards a defined goal and i think that's what sometimes makes it both really great and really difficult in this kind of sphere because you're you're doing all these things you're you're doing all this work to build a platform or get a user base and things like that but you firstly you don't really know if it will go to plan or work out so you're doing all this work without Mm. necessarily expecting a result, right? You do it anyway, (laughs) because, you know, you enjoy doing it, why not? And the hope as well, yeah. 
<laughs> so there's that. Then you, you, you do all this work and you don't know if you can actually get results. But also the the target is constantly moving. So what is your goal? Like, what is it that you actually, yeah. you know, if someone says, what what is it that you actually want to do with Code Med? The, I mean, it's pretty open, like, and it changes on like a, almost like a month by month basis. Um, <laughs> for example, do, you know, do I want it to make it a kind of online web-based course or do I want to carry on expanding it mm. as, as it is? It changes all the time. And um, I think, it's really important, again, linking back to this whole box thing, not constraining yourself to a particular idea or ideology of how things or you should be, right? So take these opportunities as they come and mm. and um, just take things in your stride. And I think the success comes with that. You just don't know when or where. And I think that's the mm. way I think about it, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. I think um, for us, it's we really enjoy what we're doing. Like you obviously with CodeBed, like there's an excitement of, you don't know what's going to be there. You're always grafting, kind of working on something. And that, that hope for us, it's like, if this works, it will change so many things. It, it will kind of disrupt an existing environment or existing marketplace or ecosystem. And I think kind of that assumption and that feeling of, you know, what we do can impact, you know, lots of people and that passion, right? And it's like, we finally got the ability to come out of the box and have a look and realize that there's so many things outside of the box that we were once in as medical students. And it's also great that, you know, it's similar to you. I think um, it really is exciting and I'm super keen and excited to see where you guys go. I think Code Med, you know, was like a random tweet I saw one day and then I reached out to Imra and then we got together. And I don't know if people know, at one point we were planning to collaborate and, you know, become partners. So um, it, it really is amazing. And the thing you're doing with Twist is amazing. You're literally growing a brand around yourself. You're inspiring so many people, kind of showcasing, you know, different things you can do as a clinician. And I think that's important. I think a lot of medical students, they see all these YouTubers, you know, doing study videos, but, you know, there's no one else showing, you know, they can code and you can do this and that, which is really wholesome to see. But um, you're dragging, you're dragging uh, in a different direction, which yeah. is amazing because that's the world no one has seen before. I think everyone's seen content creation no one has seen the potential of now development in healthcare yeah. and you you're leading the way you are genuinely leading the way so no awesome man it is absolutely that awesome was, yeah we want to thank you man aaron i know it's been a long day you finished late uh but it's been a massive pleasure i really enjoyed kind of hearing your story um and i hope our listeners you know they get to hear your story you know you, you're making some awesome tweets it's nice for them to, you know, who, who's the man behind it all. Um, but a massive thank you, bro. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your time as well. No, no, it's been a Absolutely pleasure. Absolutely pleasure.